persuading uh, hospitals and manufacturers to to adopt better alarms, aside from the standard, is to persuade them that this is important and it's cool to do so and this is what everybody's doing. And it's it's a selling point for you if you if you've got if you're using better alarms, more safe alarms, your your false alarm rates are lower because that's a, that's a key problem with the whole alarm problem is this very high false alarm rate. So there are a number of ways in which you can persuade um, people to change their practice, but they're not necessarily what you'd think. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of our discussion in the Power of Sound Club on Clubhouse about sound in healthcare. Alarms are killing us. I had the chance to moderate a panel in the Power of Sound Club on Clubhouse about sound in healthcare called Alarms Are Killing Us, and it was quite the discussion. My panelists came from all sectors of the health industry and included Dr. Joseph Schlesinger, Dr. Elif Ozkan, Professor Judy Edworthy, and Professor Michael Schutz, who has been a guest on this podcast before. We talked about how sound has a profound effect on us, for better or for worse. Hospitals have been described as beeping hellscapes. It's not surprising considering how many machines there are in the typical hospital and the noise they make. But do they have to make that much noise? And in just that precise way that they've been making sound since the 50s, when there were a lot less of them. When is an alarm too alarming? What does all that sound pollution do to an environment that's supposed to heal us? How can we fix it? Do notifications need to sound like alarms? Join my expert panelists and I as we discuss how it got this bad and what we can do to change things. This is an important topic for all of us, and I hope you'll get a lot from it. Let's hope that new standards are adopted widely and soon. As always, if you have questions for my guests, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And now, here's our discussion about sounds in healthcare. Alarms are killing us. Welcome, everyone. We are going to talk about sound in healthcare and how alarms are, yes, killing us. <laughs> uh, that's uh, up for debate, but we will definitely get into that debate, I have no doubt. Um, and I also want to change the link up here because I want to put in the first episode of my interview with Michael Schutz talking about this very topic. So if you have any questions, you are welcome to raise your hand and ask them. We'll bring you up on stage. But for the moment, I want to start by asking my panelists a question. I want to know, um, well, first of all, I guess it depends on uh, who can answer this best. I'd really like to know the history of alarm sounds and how we ended up with the dreaded beep as it is right now. <laughs> so um, if, if one of you could chime in with that, I would really appreciate it. I'm not sure who would be best qualified. Is that you, Joe? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm actually going to volunteer. Judy, I think she's probably okay. the best historian here. Sure, Judy, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> right, well, alarms on medical equipment uh, 
were very poor because you couldn't you could only produce so many sounds uh you didn't have speakers you just had a uh, maybe a piezo if you were lucky that would sound you'd have some very basic sound making device so the types of sounds that you could have on on the on medical devices was very much restricted to beeps and buzzers which is why we still right, that's where they come from it wasn't through choice it was because those were the only ways you could make a, a sound on a piece of equipment um now what happened is uh, uh, in about the 80s the standards organizations concerned with uh, medical device safety who were also concerned with well part of their remit was the alarms uh, they decided to start thinking more about their alarms and to make them uh, a bit more a bit more ergonomic a bit better and uh, we started i was involved in this project where we made a, a series of alarms to support a device standard called IEC 60601-1-8 now everybody who works on alarms will know this know this standard so what I did, I worked with a group in the 80s to devise a set of sounds that were rather like melodies uh, and they were for specific functions. Uh, we did that and it sort of sat there for a while and some of the manufacturers adopted these, uh, these melodies, which are somewhat like some of the melodies you'd hear now, but people were still using the beeps and buzzers. Um, those uh, sounds didn't go down very well. They weren't, people just didn't like them. It wasn't about how well or badly they performed. They just, it was an aesthetic response to them. So in about 2000, this same standard adopted a set of uh, melodies, basically, that support the standard. And they, they're kind of like musical beeps, really. They're not, they're not just, a, they're not just buzzers and beeps. They're something a bit better, but, but they still didn't really reflect, um, how we actually listen to sound and um, they weren't in, these sounds weren't investigated to the extent that uh, we knew whether people would understand them or would interpret them or whether it would be a problem. Um, so some manufacturers started to use one or two of those sounds but still stuck with their beeps and buzzes because um, they couldn't see the benefit of, of um, using new, the neural alarms and also they didn't have the tech, they still didn't have the technology. Now, what has happened in the last few years is that the technology has got very, very much better. We have digital technology. Most medical devices that are, that are fairly, the more sort of uh, high-end medical devices and some of the cheaper ones have speakers. Now, these speakers um, can reproduce music, so they can obviously reproduce very much better quality sound. But two things have stopped us moving um, onto using much better sounds. One is that the standard had to change because, of course, manufacturers need to comply with the standard and the standard takes a very, very long time to get changed. It has now changed. The other thing is that manufacturers don't know what to do. They don't know how to. They know that their sounds are bad, but they don't know how to go about doing it better because people, people have difficulty talking about sound. Uh, they have they have difficulty describing what the sound should be like. We don't have a set of, well, we do now, we didn't have a set of metrics against which to evaluate any new set of alarms. Um, so basically, the lack of technology and the lack of progress of the standard has meant that we've been stuck in the 20th century or the mid-20th century with these sounds. And I would I will just finish what I've, what I've been saying by saying that... Um, this has all been improved in the last year or so, the standard has been updated with much, much, much better sounds that are much easier to learn, much easier to localise, uh, much, much better in simulation. And uh, there's a set of metrics now that manufacturers can use to compare their own designs 
with the ones that we have. So we're we're waiting for the whole the whole sort of soundscape of a hospital to change for the better. So that's kind of the history. Also, there's been quite a lot of um, quite a lot of resistance to any change, and that really is down to two things: people's ignorance about how sound can help, and uh, the other one being that people don't want to change because it will cost them money because they have to. They have to uh, get their new devices past the FDA, mm, and that yeah. needs a rethink. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's in the summary. I don't know whether Joe and Aleef and Mike would agree, and Carol would agree with um, what I've just said. That's that's to me. Oh, the other reason is an aesthetic response. People are very picky about alarms. When you play them a sound, they tell you whether they like it or not, and um, they can't stop themselves. And of course, with an alarm, you don't actually have to like it. You just have to not dislike it. But that's another matter. But we can now. We have the technology and the design skills to make alarms that are effective and likable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Judy, what's your background in this? If you can sort of introduce yourself a little bit, that would be great. <laughs> okay. Well, my name is Judy Reed Edworthy, and I'm a well, I'm now Professor Emerita at the University of Plymouth in the UK, and um, I worked. I had did a PhD on music, uh, the psychology of music, and I have a degree in music and psychology. And I worked as a psychologist in that department as a member of academic staff, a psychology professor for about 35 years. And I retired from my day job last year, but I'm still doing uh, research work on alarms on various projects, including healthcare. And um, I'm very pleased to say that I'm honoured to say I've worked with everybody on the panel and uh, we have a good time talking about alarms and doing uh, good work. So basically, I've um, I've spent... 35 years working on alarms in one way or another, not always full time. And I've done lots of other things as well. I've worked on, I've worked on music and I've worked on um, visual warnings as well and some other things along the way. But the things that have really had an impact have been with the alarms work. And what I did over the last few years of my career was to, uh, was to work on this, these new alarms for the new standard. And everybody, again, everybody on the panel was involved in that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll definitely get their opinions on that as well. But yeah, I love that you were working in the psychology of this, <laughs> which is oh, yes, an yes. interesting perspective. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I do want to get to Aleph. If you want to uh, weigh in on this, Aleph, if you can introduce yourself and, and maybe let us know what you think about all the, uh, the history of these alarms and how they could maybe change <laughs> the, you know, the research that you've been doing with Judy, that would be great. Uh, my name is Elif Özcan, and uh, I am an associate professor at Delft University of Technology and the director of uh, Critical Alarms Lab. And uh, so the, the name of the lab quite gives away um, the focus that we uh, had when we started working five years ago uh, together with um, Erasmus Medical Center, the intensive care unit uh, department on how to improve um, nurse alarm interactions. So uh, I think, Jody, you're covering a full spectrum of researchers and designers who want to improve this topic. And uh, my interest is not to design necessarily this sound, but to really understand uh, where alarms uh, stand in the way nurses uh, uh, care provision or how they you know, use alarms in order to deliver the care that they need to deliver. So um, going back to the history, um, 
in the 50s, for example, one of the things that they noticed that in the cardiograms when they were checking uh, heart activities, they really needed uh, a warning system because they were missing uh, critical vital information to, to help uh, the patient. And um, so that also shows as a designer for me, uh, the need to, you know, the need to respond to alarms. My dream is actually to be able to go back to a point where, you know, we live in the in a world in, in ICU or in operating theaters in which we can start from scratch without any alarms and slowly understand actually what type of alarms do we need? Um, because uh, as you know, um, uh, Joe and Mike and Judy, they, we all know from our research, uh, up to 98% of these alarms can be false or inactionable. And, um, it, and this is a huge number. Uh, if somebody also works, for example, in a neonatal intensive care unit, we, in Erasmus Medical Center, we did measure up to 12,000 alarms in one unit. And that's too many alarms for anyone to, to, to handle. So my dream would be actually go back to a moment uh, in time or just doesn't matter, a moment in, in the critical care, what alarms do we really need? And can we start from scratch and understand these needs? What, and, um, and what kind of actions do actually nurses want to take or, or uh, 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 the surgeons want to take when they need an alarm and what is the purpose? So I always like to ask the question behind the question and go very deep in this, you know, uh, expressing uh, or, or give voice to the users. So user-centered design or human-centered design is uh, one of the pillars of our lab. Um, that's what we want to understand. But when it comes to Mike, for example, he really wants to uh, create, um, I mean, he wants to engineer these alarms in on such minute detail because that's equally important to, you know, the understanding the need for designing alarms or Judy's uh, uh, approach in uh, standardizing these alarms or how, uh, again, uh, Joe has to use this, but him being a user and a designer as well, um, he has a different perspective. So we are an amazing team. Actually, we are the Alarms Club. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. what we like to call ourselves that. Sure. Um, yeah, and then we empower each other because you know we have completely different uh, interests and perspectives into the topic. Yeah, wonderful. It's good that all of you are working together too to sort of get all the perspectives into this. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Elif. looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com audio-branding-strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website. And I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. 
And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. I'm going to move on to Joe. Um, if you want to introduce yourself and then let us know what you think about all this, that would be great. Yeah. So my name is Joe Schlesinger. I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. My background is in music. My undergraduate degree is in jazz piano performance. And I'm a practicing anesthesiologist and intensivist. And uh, I've worked with this team for, well, Judy, for about uh, 10 years now. And I think Aleph summed it up best when you look at the multidisciplinary nature of our group from the very fine nature of sound design with uh, specific acoustic features of sound, which, you know, Mike is an expert in. Judy also with sound design and has a long history of uh, alerts and alarms in different high consequence industries, not just medicine. And then when you uh, think of design, what AILF's really done uh, with the Critical Alarms Lab is work on these focus groups with the Rasmus Medical Center, because you need to know with from the end user, what do they need? You don't want to just design alarms in a vacuum. And then from my standpoint, of course, you know, I'm exposed to these all the time. So an ICU nurse usually has two patients, but I have all the patients. And so when I practice in the neuro ICU, I have 24 patients. So thinking about who needs what information at what time, and then beyond auditory alarms, uh, my interest is also in multi-sensory integration. So thinking about the visual domain and then also exploring vibrotactile input, which is not something we really appreciably use. I mentor biomedical engineering students in device design. So we think about improving the design, not only of the perception and the sound, but also the physicality of the devices that deliver the sensory information. So we really uh, attack it from a micro and a macro standpoint, thinking about the patient, the clinician, and then the families too. You know, they're exposed to this alarm environment. As Aleph said, most alarms are false. So if most alarms are false, naturally we're not running into the room uh, like an emergency. But to a patient or to a patient's family, they don't know that. Every alarm is serious. So what's the perception of the quality of care if we seem lackadaisical to these alarms? Oh, good point. Yeah. And it's very alarming, <laughs> quote, for everyone in the room. I mean, um, and even if you are a practitioner and you are walking those halls and you're hearing all of these uh, beeps and alarms, you may know that they're not all that important in certain uh, contexts, but at the same time, it is assaulting your ears. It's noise. <laughs> so if you hear too much of that, don't you start to get desensitized to even the most severe alarms? It would kind of make me wonder. Absolutely. We, we violate the OSHA and NIOSH regulations of workplace exposure to sound. And especially, I think this came to light during COVID when physicians and nurses were interviewed talking about the burnout, not just of the COVID patients, but it really brought to light that we're in this acoustically caustic environment. And so not only do we get desensitized or habituate to these, but also just the sheer effect on us. You know, when I go to bed at night, I hear the beeping of pulse oximetry in my head and uh, just the headaches and the stress. And the whole attitude uh, really has changed towards healthcare providers, of course, during the pandemic. So it's been kind of a perfect storm of negativity. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, Mike, do you want to weigh in on this? Can you introduce yourself and let us know what you think? Sure. My name is Michael Schutz. I am an associate professor of music cognition and percussion at McMaster University. And I think I'm the 
newest member of Alarms Club here. It's great to get to connect with everyone virtually again. Uh, I first got involved with this team a couple of years ago when Joe invited me to come to a conference in Portugal and just get to meet some of these people whose work I've been reading about. And my involvement with this is different because I didn't come from the medical perspective. I didn't come even from the human factor side. I am just a sound geek and I like playing with sound and synthesizing sound. And I have a lot of research showing problems with beeps in auditory research that we talk about in the podcast. And so I've sort of been become known as like the anti-beep guy in the research community. And then years ago at a conference, <laughs> I, <love that. laughs> I sell t-shirts on the website. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I was at a conference and Joe introduced himself and was describing these problems with the, the alarms community. And uh, we got to chatting and I realized there's an interesting application for some of my you know, fascination with how we can synthesize sounds differently. And I think it was Alif who at the meeting of Alarms Club uh, put it out that I'm sort of like using the microscopic approach to look at these sounds. And I've used that uh, idea a couple of times since then, because what I'm doing a lot of is looking at sort of the nuance of how we can sculpt the sound to make it better. Because uh, from my perspective, it seems like we're always going to have a lot of these alarms in hospitals because, you know, devices make sounds and the sounds are important for notifying. And so if we know we're in a situation where we're flooding hospitals with a lot of sound, my question is, why are we continually choosing to use bad sounds for that? And so that's where I'm trying to contribute to the problem. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so it, again, if anyone would like to raise their hand and join us on stage to ask your question, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. We're happy to bring you up and have you ask your question yourself, or if you would prefer that we ask it for you, you are welcome to go into the room chat and put your question in there, and we'll be happy to ask it on your behalf. Uh, but I do want to get to the the solving of this problem, because we discussed a lot of the problems. And, and I mean, Joe, you're right in the thick of it, working in that every day. So I definitely feel for you. Uh, are there ways to solve this problem? And, and how can we do that? I know, Judy, that you touched on this. Um, but getting people to actually engage and use those solutions, first off, what do you have to do to change the sounds? And then secondly, what do you have to do to get people to adopt it? That's, you know, <laughs> there's a couple of questions there. Does anyone want to chime in on that? Um, yes, uh, Judy here. Um, well, you can, you can try persuading people through... Uh, papers you know academic papers and and uh, magazines and articles and blogs and and videos on this but actually for manufacturers the one way to get them to change is to is to change the standard i know i've talked about the standard before but um in the end manufacturers are concerned uh to get their devices to market and they have to get them past the fda to get them to market and if you assume that the standard has the the best practice, contains best practice and best knowledge, which up to now it hasn't, but it now does, then um, one of the ways, one of the strong and powerful ways to get uh, manufacturers to to use better sounds is is to require them to to follow the standard. Actually, the standard that we have is not mandatory, but why would you not want to comply with the standard? I mean, you you would want yeah. to, wouldn't you? If you if you if you're a company who takes yourself seriously, you'd want to comply with the standards. So that's one way. My experience has been that uh, it's difficult to persuade people with science because um, some people just will say, "Oh yes, but I don't believe that," or "I don't, I don't think that." 
you know, so, well, there's the evidence. And they, they will still say, yeah, but I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced. And you say, well, what would convince you? you know, so so the, there are some difficulties with getting people to follow that. So one of the ways, of course, is to... Um, is to change the standard. Another way is to is to try to get a. What as a psychologist, the best way to get a beha- change in behaviour is to if, bring about a culture shift. And I think uh, Aleif will know this, and and um, I'm sure that Joe will know it too. That it's it's like driving a car. How do you persuade uh, young people not to drive dangerously? Well, there's no. What you definitely don't do is teach them to drive better because they will just drive more dangerously what you do is you make being safe cool right so that requires a culture shift so it persuading uh hospitals and manufacturers to to adopt better alarms aside from the standard is to persuade them that this is important and it's cool to do so and this is what everybody's doing and it's it's a selling point for you if you if you've got if you're using better alarms more safe alarms your your false alarm rates are lower because that's a, that's a key problem with the whole alarm problem is this very high false alarm rate so there are a number of ways in which you can persuade um, people to change their practice but they're not necessarily what you'd think yeah it's interesting getting into the psychology of it thank you judy yeah elif go ahead um, I totally agree with Judy, and especially this culture change. Uh, it is so important, and and cultures do not change, you know, overnight. They really need uh, good practices, but slowly and steadily. And I think um, what we need is uh, good ambassadors to take on this topic. And I think that's what uh, we did at Erasmus Medical Center five years ago. And the adult ICU. Uh, is at the moment rather quiet. And when my researcher students, they go there and they come back, I'm so sorry, but, you know, it's been really quiet over there. So we didn't really get to the bottom of the problem. And um, we, ha- I had another anecdote with an, another nurse that had, was transferred from another hospital. And he thought that the first thing he's going to do is to talk about alarm fatigue. And then he got embarrassed because uh, he, he thought, you know, Erasmus Medical Center was really uh, doing very well. The, the adult ICU that I'm talking about doing really well um, uh, with that. And one of the things that we did over there is to uh, involve um, nurses in the projects that we did. Because, you know, I come from a human centered design perspective, so we need participants. Uh, expert users to understand their needs. So we had them, we, you, you know, we got them on board, uh, we co-created uh, some of the solutions, and these solutions were hardly ever designing the sounds or designing alarms, uh, but it, it was about really understanding, understanding the problem uh, and coming up with some solutions. And one of them, for example, was a silent patient monitor, that would be only activated in the presence of um, uh, c- clinical, um, uh, you know, a, a, a clinician, be it a nurse or uh, or a doctor. Um, but it would be very quiet, you know, if the patient is alone, and it would be uh, just showing some information like heart rate in the presence of family. Um, for example, these kinds of solutions or other solutions that we have come up with in, in our lab, it was always co-created or uh, evaluated by the nurses. And having them on board 
also allow them to understand uh, the, the problems themselves and they can be more proactive. Uh, like Judy said, you can't just tell maybe um, a very excited teenager to drive very safe, um, but but maybe questioning, you know, talking about the issues and uh, making, creating awareness, uh, creating sensitivities will help. And with such institutions or medical centers, uh, if they are on board, uh, local hospitals will also want to be on board. And it, because I think then they see the effect and they want to be uh, better. Um, so I think one of the, the solutions is, um, uh, yeah, having good ambassadors. Be, uh, be it the hospitals or they can be uh, manufacturers as well, Co uh, you know, collaborating with them and again, co-designing, you know, together with uh, evidence-based design uh, that there's scientific foundation to whatever uh, innovation that's being done or, or solutions that's being created. Because in design, we know, for example, that without the help of uh, psychology, we really cannot um, uh, understand how you know, people interact with the products and uh, how efficient it is or um, how do they properly use the products. So human factors is very important. And uh, having companies with the sci uh, coming up with innovation based on science will also uh, create better practices in design. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And definitely the psychology behind that. And, and actually, here's an interesting aspect. And I don't know if... Um, if the people on the panel have thought about this, you probably have, but each of these manufacturers also would want to differentiate themselves as a higher end product. And if they want to do that, they should have better sound because that gives the impression that they're a higher end product. So, you know, maybe that's, that's another way to convince the manufacturers of these things to up their game a little because it's cool to have good sound. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to write a review of this show. So I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank you when you do. Mike GMK writes, Secret weapon hidden in plain sight. I wish I had some power to put this cast in front of everyone who writes advertising. Most people who write it in the digital age are absolutely unaware of the power of sound and the spoken word. So along comes Jody with the most powerful communication tool there is, hidden in plain sight, the spoken word. And not just that, but proof, in episode after episode, of the power audio has to affect our very thoughts. What marketer or brand manager wouldn't want that? I've done sound design, scripting, production, and voice for radio, TV, and videos for, um, well, a good while. I'm now listening to every episode of this show. I'm learning new things about sound in nearly every show. For anyone in advertising, video, audiobooks, television, and whatever I've missed— this podcast is of great value. Thanks so much, Mike. I'm really glad you're getting value from the podcast, and I so appreciate the kind words. And now, back to the show. So, uh, yeah, I, I want to get to uh, Joe and, and Mike's perspective on this. Joe, what do you think? So I agree with you, Jody, and we're starting to see that a little bit. You know, from first what Judy said, we say standard, and it's a bit of a nomenclature issue. Because when you think of a standard in medicine, that's an obligatory thing. There's no IEC standards police, but you know it is best evidence. And so it is in manufacturers' probably best interest to follow those standards or, or guidelines. 
and I think the the culture shift is is starting to happen. You know, there's a lot of politics, and things don't go quickly as as we've determined. But um, there are some biomedical design device companies that now are employing human factors engineers, where they think of the ergonomics of design and the end user. And the design is not just uh, engineers developing something as far as thinking about just medical legal issues like, okay, we have to have something be so loud and so annoying so it's never, ever missed, but how detrimental then that is downstream as, you know, we see now. And so I think that's the, the really difficult thing about design is you have to be, you have to be human centered. You have to think about the guideline of it, the end user, but the exposure to everybody involved and in medicine, it's complex. And the other complex thing in medicine and design is it's not a consistent environment. So, you know, in, in our hospital, we have 50, five, zero operating rooms, and some of them don't even look like others. There's ones that were built more recently. And so obviously the clinical space changes, whereas, you know, if you fly a Boeing 737 for Delta versus a 737 for American, those cockpits are pretty much the same. So you have the environmental considerations, um, you know, in, in a healthcare setting, and then the, the cultural settings. So fortunately, Erasmus, Erasmus Medical Center built this new medical center, and they were really conscientious about the physical space, the environmental design. And so sometimes if you don't have that luxury and you're taking, you're retrofitting it into what you have, you know, it can be very different. And then it varies on location. So you know, we're talking about ICU, but an ICU at a tertiary academic medical center versus a small community hospital are obviously going to vary wildly. Sure. I mean, as does the environment, too. I mean, a smaller room is going to, uh, you know, make that beep or whatever it is, have a louder sound, right? <laughs> so it, it also just depends on the actual makeup of the room itself. And that can change obviously based on hospital to hospital and depending on how new the hospital is. This has been part one of our Clubhouse discussion. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time. Until next time.